Hey guys, I'm Ashley Burkhart, host of When the Cleats Come Off, and you are about to meet one of my very best friends in the game, and you're about to see why. He and I could talk about hitting four days, four days, and there's a reason why I call him up every single week to talk about hitting, to talk about mental game, and just life in general. He is like Yoda when it comes to this stuff. So for those of you who want to know who this is, His name is Chris Vasami. He is one of the most thoughtful, genuine coaches I've ever met in my life. He was a four-time pro player for the Rockies. He played two years of independent ball. He was an all-conference player at Elon after starting his career at Notre Dame. And the list just go on and on. The records go on and on. He was an incredible player and is now giving back in a very similar way to the way I coach. So if you guys want to learn more about him and learn more about hitting and also learn how cancer has helped him become a better version of himself as a coach, this is your episode. So without further ado, this is my great friend, Chris Asami. Hey there, I'm Ashley Burkhart owner of Ashley B Training, former D1 athlete, and professional athlete in the game of softball. I even spent a little bit of time coaching at the college level as well. But now I coach athletes, and especially youth athletes, and I try to teach them the ways to become the very best versions of themselves. And I know that they can't do that without a support system that will do anything and everything to make sure their dreams and their goals happen for them. A lot of times I hear parents and coaches saying, hey, I'm just going to dish my athlete off to you. Hopefully you can figure out what her issue is. Here's the deal. That's not how we should coach. That's not how we should parent. And I can tell you right now, I'm not a parent, but your athlete is the most influenced by you. And I truly believe that you are one of the reasons why she plays the game. And I truly believe you are one of the reasons why she plays so hard. So if we can learn from some of the greats, I'm going to have some of the best softball players, some of the best softball players' parents, even my parents and my family are going to be on this podcast sharing our journeys with you so that when the cleats do come off, you know what to say so that she can learn from her mistakes sooner, so that she can become the best version of her. And that's what we want. We want our athletes to be able to thrive. And that's why we're here. So welcome to this podcast. This is going to get real. This is going to get deep. And I'm here to challenge your thinking. That's why I coach. I'm really excited for you to be here. And I can't wait to hear who else is going to be along this journey with us, learning from some of the best. I'm going to be learning too. So whip out your notebook and let's head to the next episode. everyone. Welcome to another episode of When the Cleats Come Off. I am honored to bring this guest on the show. He is one of my very best friends in the baseball, softball world. And kid you not, we met on Instagram. Kind of crazy. We'll probably get into that here in a second. This is my great friend, Chris Vasami. What's up, man? How you doing? I'm so excited to have you here. I so know, excited it's... that I wore my t-shirt today. I appreciate it. I guess I didn't send it for nothing. So, oh, I know. Yeah, you you were definitely strategic when you sent that to me. You're like, yeah, she's gonna wear it when when we do our podcast together. So much fun, <laughs> so much fun. So, for anybody that doesn't know who you are, what you're up to, can you give everybody a backstory on you? 
I was born in uh, Westchester, New York, just outside New York City. Grew up there in Mamaroneck, went to Mamaroneck High School. I'm the uh, second of four kids. I, you know, I always say that because I totally believe in birth order. Um, <laughs> it plays a huge part in who I am today, not only as a uh, player, but also as a person. I was a utility player in uh, high school. I was a two-way guy, all-American first baseman and pitcher. Went to Notre Dame at a high school. And then um, after my first year, transferred down to Elon University, where I played there and then ended up getting drafted in the Colorado Rockies organization. And then while I was playing in college, I sophomore year, I was in a collision at first base and I blew out my left shoulder and needed a job before I was going to have surgery that late July. So I hopped on the computer and uh, made a flyer, got some old school clip art and <laughs> threw up some flyers around town. And that's how Vasami training started really. And then as my, as my career progressed and as I started to really enjoy teaching more, it just, I knew it's, you know, what I was just kind of destined to do uh, after baseball. Absolutely. And we call ourselves spirit animals, don't we? We do. Yeah. We do. And there's a reason behind that. We both kind of stumbled upon this profession and have figured out that this is our happy place. Yeah. And it's so funny for those of you who don't know this, which is pretty much everyone, we hop, he and I, we hop on a call every single week and we talk the swing. We talk about life. We talk about business. We talk about all the things. And I'm excited to share with you guys at the very end, something that he's been up to that I cannot wait to promote because I think it's going to change the game, especially for hitters. So I'm excited to get into that here in a little bit. But before we do that, um, one thing that I definitely wanted listeners to get to know about you is something very personal, but it's something that really shows your heart and your character. And I truly believe it makes you one of the best coaches that I know in the game. And I know that has happened because of this circumstance. So do you mind sharing with, I think I, I think you know what I'm talking about here, yeah. but do you mind sharing with the audience a little bit of something that has recently come into your life that has changed your perspective on a lot of things? Yeah. Uh, three and a half years ago, I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer and, um, sorry. You're good. Yeah. Changed my life. Um, you know, I thought up until the day I got diagnosed with cancer, I thought hitting with the bases loaded with two outs in the bottom of the ninth inning was the hardest thing in life. And it really changed my perspective on a lot of stuff. You know, it, you're sick before you find out you're sick. And so about four years ago, uh, this time I wasn't feeling very good and, and I've never really dealt with anxiety or paranoia or anything like that before. Always been a pretty even keeled person. And I remember my wife was getting ready to go to a bachelorette party. And I remember waking up that day and just saying to her, like, I don't, I don't want you to leave. And she was like, Oh, you know, come on. Like, you know, that's, that's not like you, you know, I'll be fine. I'll be back in a couple of days. And so she went, she came back and that kind of started the snowball effect of like every two weeks, just something different was going wrong. I didn't want to work anymore. I didn't want to work out anymore. Just nothing. Uh, the zest for life was just gone. And, but the problem is you don't know it's gone until like it's thrown in your face. So my wife and I would start to kind of have some issues and misunderstandings that just weren't us. I mean, we were, you know, at this time, not very, not married for, you know, only but a couple of years. So we, we should have been enjoying these times together. And so 
I, we were out at a uh, wedding with a whole bunch of friends. And one of the friends who was there as a doctor and she knew me in college and she went up to Paige and she was like, look, there's something wrong with Chris. This is not the person I know. This is not the person I love. You know, when you guys get back, he needs to get checked out. And so I decided uh, to go see uh, my primary doctor and found out that my testosterone was low. And as a 31 year old, that's kind of a red flag right away. So I then uh, went and saw a urologist and he wanted to put me on synthetic medicine that was not going to be the best regimen for me. So I kind of called him on it and didn't really agree with how he wanted to go about it. So I ended up going to two more doctors. Finally, the third doctor kind of helped me. Not really though, still looking and seeking for answers. And finally, the week before Christmas, 2016, I went and saw an endocrinologist and she was the first doctor to put her hands on me. And she felt a big giant lump in my neck. And right there in the office, she asked me if she could do an ultrasound. She did. And uh, she found five tumors that day. So we scheduled a biopsy in between Christmas and New Year's and you know, found out January 5th, 2017 that I had thyroid cancer. But what was so interesting is that I remember walking out of the office after my biopsy with my dad and I just turned to him and I was like, I have cancer. Like this is we shouldn't be here right now. It's two days after Christmas. Like it's so many reasons I shouldn't have been there. But, you know, but even still, even knowing in my heart and my head that I had had cancer, even, you know, on January 5th, when I got that phone call and I heard those words, I mean, it's still, it's, it's life changing. Absolutely. And that just started the next three and a half years of hell and back and then hell again. And when I didn't think I could go through hell anymore, like, I did it again, and it's just been a, an up and down roller coaster for three and a half years of treatments and surgeries and medicine changes. And but you know, at the same time, through all of that, it's it's completely changed my life for the good. Also, you know, I put a, a post on Instagram a couple weeks ago, essentially thanking cancer for allowing me the mental and the emotional shift and perspective that it it has given me. It took a while to get there, don't get me wrong, but it's allowed me to become a better teacher. It's allowed me to become a better husband, a better father, a better family man, and hopefully a better friend in person. So when did that start happening for you? Because I'm sure you went through a lot of, like you were saying, a lot of hell before the good happened. When was that transition for you to become that better version of you because of it and realizing that cancer wasn't going to take you, it was actually going to help fuel you? Yeah, I would say after my second surgery. So I had my first surgery in March of 2017. I had my second surgery in March of 2018. For a whole year and change, I played the victim and was just, why me? And just sitting back and waiting for medicine to help me and waiting for doctors to help me. And it didn't work. It actually got worse. Not being my own advocate and not being completely honest at all times, not only with the people around me, but with myself about how I was feeling and how my days were. And that kind of led me just to a, a bad place. So I would say probably after my second surgery was when I really started to understand that my body and cancer was going to do whatever it wanted. So mentally and emotionally, I had to do what I felt like I needed to do. Yeah. So how do you think that that experience made you a better coach? When I wake up every day now, every day is an opportunity to get better. Um, every day is a gift. And so it's helped me in that 
when I work with my players, I try to constantly shift their ideas and their perspective from I have to do this to I get to do this. I don't want to do this because it's too hard to embrace the challenge, embrace being uncomfortable, embrace the, the growth mindset. And, you know, baseball and softball are funny games because at the end of the day, they're failing sports. And so if you want to look at it like a failing sport, you can. And just like I was looking at looking at cancer as a failing diagnosis. But, you know, the when you look at it and you sit there and you go, no, you know what? Like every time I go up to bat, every single pitch, I have the opportunity to take my best swing. And that's all I have control of. That's what it's about. So good. I love hearing this because it's one of those where like, I, I'm glad you started with the fact that you said, I thought that, you know, a tough pressure situation in the game was the worst thing ever. Yeah. And you were quickly turned around with that thought. How do you feel playing the game of baseball helped set you up for success when it came into how you're looking at this? I feel like when you, when you take any situation in life, work, school, whatever, I feel like everything I relate to now goes back to the game yeah. and what the game has taught me in that situation. So how do you think the game set you up for this in a way to where, again, it could be for you to learn from and for you to overcome? Baseball and softball have so many gray areas to them. It's not black and white. You know, when you're seven years old, you can look at it as I hit the ball or I missed the ball. But by the time you're 11, it has to go to quality at bats, quality swings. You know, did I hit four line drives today? Did I miss the pitch I was supposed to hit? And then, you know, it just gets deeper and deeper from there, the shades of gray. I'm in a place now where, you know, like I said, I've been to hell and back plenty of times and I didn't think I could get worse than I did last year. Last Thanksgiving, uh, the day after Thanksgiving, I was rushed to the hospital because I thought I was having a heart attack because my thyroid symptoms had gotten so bad. Up until that point, my symptoms had always manifested very physically. So for anybody who's listening who has thyroid disease or thyroid problems. You know what I'm talking about when you, you know, your joints get swollen and you're tired and you're achy and you are lethargic and you have no energy and you can't get out of bed. Or like I would do sometimes, I would literally stare at my shoes and have a conversation with them about for about 20 minutes about whether I should put them on or not and whether I should go out or not. And it was always very physical. But back in January, my chemically and physiologically, I was so messed up that it actually manifested mentally. And for about two, two and a half months, I was suicidal. I would just go down that rabbit hole every day because that's how messed up my hormones were. That's how messed up I was and, and so out of control. Like even, you know, even with the most mentally strong people, like you, sometimes you can't overcome the physiological issues that are going on in your body. Um, and it just takes a bit of awareness to even understand how to fix it. You know, I remember being in a place of like literally holding my daughter but at the same time, thinking about like how I would be in a better place if I wasn't alive. And so when you're able to step back and get through that, um, you know, I love that saying, like, if you're going through hell, why would you stop? Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, there's no point. So by the time you, when you get on the other side and you're able to look back, I, it used, I use it to fuel me every day. Like I never want to go back to that dark place ever again. So just like I never wanted to step into the batter's box without being prepared. You know, I always took my training so serious. I took every swing I took so serious. And that way, when I got into the game, 
and I got my pitch. Was I going to hit a home run every time? No. But if I knew I could put my best swing on it, there was always something to build on. And so that's how I look at it every day now. Like every day I get out of bed and every day is his own. You know, I can't, I, I can't say that if I'm feeling good today, that I'll feel good tomorrow. I'd have to wait. But I know that if I do everything I can today to be ready for tomorrow, then I, I'm giving myself my best chance. Well, you're doing a dang good job of it, my friend. <laughs> we, uh, you know, I love our live chats every single week, but we also love to talk about our favorite thing in the world, and that's hitting. Yeah. You mentioned in a call that we had together about how because your hormones were wild, it's helped you have more sympathy and empathy mm-hmm. for hitters as well. Can you kind of go into that and why do you think that is? Absolutely. When I first started teaching, um, I was in the middle of my you know, career and my strive to get drafted. And then I got drafted and I was in the middle of my career. And so I'll be the first person to admit that I thought everybody who want, everybody wanted it as bad as I did. And so I would, you know, give somebody homework to do and, and they wouldn't do it and they'd come back and I'd be like, why didn't you do this? Don't you want to get better? Like, but for a myriad of reasons, they didn't do it. And, and, and as time went on, it was, it was upon me to help understand like, where their mindset is, where their heart is, where their soul is, you know, in terms of gauging how into it or not into it are they going to be. And so when I think back to when I played, okay, like that batter's box is a lonely place. Even when you're feeling good, it's still a lonely place. And so when, you, when you're not quite sure what you should be doing or how to fix it, you're always searching for answers. And so, you know, that empathy and sympathy that I display to my players is like, look, I know what's going through your head. Okay. I know when the coach gives you a take sign and the ball's right down the middle, I know the first thing that goes through your head. It's usually not a good thought. Okay. Mm -hmm. But we got to get rid of it as fast as we can because it's still not going to help you take your best swing. That's, that's what I'm trying to help my players understand is at the end of the day, all the training you do, is to put yourself in a position that you can take your best swing. And when you do that, you give yourself your best chance. And so having these negative thoughts, being in a negative space, you know, you and I have talked about this before. You create the environment that you play in. And it, and it starts in training. It starts in your pregame. It starts, you know, on the way to the field. It continues, you know, when the cleats come off, And so the more empathy and sympathy that I can show my players that, Hey, you know, I'm, I I totally understand. There's nothing you're going to go through as a player that I haven't gone through myself. And then some, so what can we do to put yourself in your best headspace? And if nothing else, if you're not in your best headspace, how can we help you be able to fix it as quick as possible? That way, bad weekends don't happen. Maybe bad at-bats happen, but not bad weekends, not bad games, not back-to-back like that where we all know that things can just spiral so fast. Absolutely. So what would you say to parents out there to I, to just have more empathy and sympathy and the power of it? Because we know with our athletes, if we're a certain way and we don't have that sympathy for them, they're not going to respond in a way that's going to help them perform better. I think a lot of parents expect a lot, which is great. Like we should have high expectations for our athletes at all times, 
but also understanding where they're at is really important. So what advice would you give parents here with, you know, maybe having a little more empathy or sympathy to understand their athletes a bit more? I understand that it's a game and I understand that it's supposed to be fun. But if you are a competitive person at all, it's always going to be success or failure first before it's going to be fun. Okay. And so that's why I, a lot of times I talk to my players about like, look, this is your job. Okay. Like it's your job to take your training into the batter's box. We can do 90% of the work together. That's my job. Your job is that last 10% when I'm not there or when nobody's standing next to you. Can you remember the two or three things that make you be your best in that batter's box? That's your job. Okay. And the way I say that is then I can then relay it to the parents and I can say, Hey, mom, dad, if you were at work, okay. And in between each job or phone call you had, you had your boss over your shoulder telling you things that you should be working on or figuring out or fixing right before your next phone call, how successful would you be? Okay. If, you know, and, and so parents say to me all the time, well, like, you know, he, he or she does such a great job when she's with you or, or he's with you, but when he gets to the game, it just doesn't translate. And the first thing I always go to is because they're not taking the same mindset that we have into the game. Mm-hmm. And they're and they in go, a comfortable environment. Exactly. And I say to them, and they go, well, well how, how do we fix that? And I go, well, you have to put yourself in your kid's shoes in that moment. I said, if, if he's supposed to be thinking about hands high, attack the ball, but he's thinking, don't strike out, hands high, attack the ball is not going to happen. The same thing with you, mom. If you are you know, a real estate agent and you're showing the house, and instead of being in that moment telling the person who you're trying to sell this house to everything that they should know about this house, you're thinking about the grocery store and what you're going to do for dinner and your other two kids, what's the likelihood of you making that sale? So we have to be able to put ourselves in other people's shoes. That's the, that is the defining moment and the, define, the definition of empathy is being able for me to put myself in your shoes to feel what you are feeling. Yeah. Well, I didn't even plan to go here, but let's go here. The fact that a lot of dads play, had played baseball, they understand baseball, they think like guys, you know, I, you and I both know this, girls are different. Yeah. We're, we're different. We do not, I mean, I was lucky enough to grow up with a bunch of guys who like never let me win in my neighborhood. So like I probably had tougher skin than most, but most girls don't have that. Most females don't have that. And I think a part of the empathy is exactly what you're saying is put yourself in your daughter's shoes. And most dads have trouble doing that Yeah, because they were, you know, that age at some point, but they thought differently. They acted differently. They were told to be a little more aggressive. They were told to, you know, stand tall and do all these things. And I'm just like, Exactly. Exactly. So like, how could we talk to our female athletes to not treat them like boys if they don't, you know, have that, but maybe help build a little bit more toughness? I don't even know where I'm going with this question, but I feel like you know how to answer it. What should we say? If there's anything I've learned over the years, I have a sister who's younger than me. I have, you know, I've worked with plenty of softball players. They 
mature faster. Okay. Yeah. So I can have, I, I always say it this way. I can have a 16 year old softball player and a 16 year old baseball player. And if I give the softball player a hundred swings and she takes 99 the right way, she's flipping out about the one she did wrong. <laughs> so true. Okay. The, uh, I have the, the 16 year old baseball player. Okay. For the most part, will take 60 swings the right way and be like, bro, I got this. I'll see you in two weeks. Okay. You have to understand the maturity that you're dealing with. Okay. And because they're more mature and because they're able to express their thoughts and emotions in, in more of a coherent way, there needs to be more conversation, less barking. You know, it's unless your female athlete know, like, unless you know that that female athlete is going to understand that and she responds to that, but most don't. Okay. They want to be, they want to have the conversation. They want to be talked to. Okay. So for instance, I, so I have, a, I have two daughters. Okay. I have a 20 month old daughter and I have a three month old daughter. And, um, I read this book about fathers and daughters. Okay. And this, this, this example blew my mind. Okay. A father and son can sit on the couch and watch a baseball game together for three hours, not say a word. And afterwards, if you ask them the question, they will both say that they just had quality time together. You, a, husband, a father and a daughter sits on the couch together and does that. The father will say we had quality time and the daughter will say, I don't think my dad loves me because he doesn't talk to me. Mm. It blew my mind when I heard that. And it just wow. helped me understand the, the, the realization that, you know, when you're talking to the female athletes, okay, it's, it has to be a conversation. It has to be thoughtful. It has to be done the right way. Okay. And not because you're trying to be gentle or be delicate to their feelings. Okay. It's just that a conversation it can be had as opposed to dictating orders. Okay. But when you were saying this, it made me think of, you know, you gave the exact dad, son watching a game. Well, dad and I used to watch USA mm -hmm and like a bunch of women's college world series. And he would have those conversations with yeah. me. We had TiVo going on, watching the best players, watching the center fielder. Cause that's what the position I played, watching her first step and how she stole bases. And like, we broke down the game together. Yeah. And that's the quality time that I now as a 27 year old cherish the most. Right. Is not that just he was with me, but that we were together and we were working together. And like, same thing with, I've shared this on the podcast before, but same thing with, I decided I, I was going to become a pitcher and he knew nothing about pitching. And we studied YouTube, like half the YouTube videos are probably trash, but we still studied together. We still figured it out together and we experimented. And I think that itself is showing the utmost empathy when dad's like, I don't know how to do this. And he didn't try to play the, oh, I know everything card. He was like, no, I don't know this. We're and gonna we're going to, we're going to figure it out together. And that's another thing about being the firstborn. It, it was a lot easier for children's two and three in our yeah. family for him to, to do that. But it was, it was honestly, that was my favorite. That was my favorite memory. It's yeah. just sitting down watching games with dad. That's awesome. Yeah. That's so awesome. And now that you are a dad, it's like, Shoot, you know you know exactly how you're gonna coach your kids, don't you? You already know. I do. I do. It's, what if they all what if they play piano and they don't want to play softball? Then that's fine. I mean, I, I've said that before. Like it's they're gonna do they're gonna do something 
and they're going to be, and they're going to practice and they're going to be passionate about it. Like that's, I feel like those are the qualities that it takes to become a, a good human being. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, you know, I've, I've joked, I, I said, I have two daughters, which is, you know, I, I'll, I'll throw them in a two person crew boat, you know, we'll be, we'll be good to go. Like, <laughs> you know, I, that's what I mean. They can dance, they can, they can sing, they can do whatever they want and I'll support them a hundred percent. I just want them to know that, you know, the, the pillars to, to achieving anything are, are hard work and passion. Well said. And they're not just going to be average piano players. They're going to be great. Yeah. If they, I mean, if they choose it. If because they choose. That's, exactly. Yeah. But you're so right in any aspect, whatever, whatever kids want to do, like let them figure out what it is yeah. and, and just support them along the journey. It's not like it's going to be a perfect journey. I swear mm-hmm. my like career was like this half the time, but like, just keep going, keep That's moving, right. keep doing stuff. I think I saw a quote earlier this week that said something along the lines of, it, it actually had a lot to do with what you were saying earlier. If you're going through hell, why stop? Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, if you're going through a rough patch, like the only way you're going to get out of it is if you just keep moving and just get through going. it and just try something new. You know, yeah. I think 1%. that's huge. 1% is always better than zero. I mean, yeah. and, 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 you know, when you think about 1% better every day over the course of a year, you finish the year 37 times better than when you started. <laughs> I love that. You have so many just gem <laughs> quotes. Like when you, when we're on our phone calls each week, I'm like, why are we not recording this? Because there's just so many gems you have. Maybe that was, you know, what you were doing. When you scroll on Instagram, you're just memorizing quotes, I feel like. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, and it's part of what I tell people all the time is like, look, you know, all the pain and suffering has to be for something, you know, all the three and a half years of, of what I've gone through has to be for something. And on the other side of pain and of, of pain and suffering is strength and wisdom. And, you know, I've, I've come to find out that, you know, I, I feed off human connection. I feed off, you know, having these conversations and, you know, and being able to reach my full potential, but also if I can help somebody reach their full potential, like that's what I believe we were, you know, put here for. Absolutely. This is why we love coaching. Yeah. This is why we do it. So there was something I heard you say on another podcast this week and it lit me up and I loved it. And I honestly want to know where this came from, you talk about how inspiration and motivation are two completely different things. Yes. And my jaw dropped because in my head, I'm like, no, they're the same, right? But Mm -hmm. you describe it in such a freaking awesome way to where I hope listeners can just engulf engulf all of this because it's just so good. Can you give me your definite, the difference between motivation and inspiration? Absolutely. So to me, motivation is short-term. It is fleeting it is periodic it could be i want to drop you know 20 pounds before my wedding it could be i want to run a you know a 5k that's great you're motivated to do it but what happens when it's over uh, i want to i want to hit a home run great so you hit your home run in the second game of the year is your year over like no and so motivation it can be great at times but you know for the most part like i said it's it's periodic. It's fleeting. Inspiration is your why. It is the reason you do stuff. It's um, the reason that you continuously think about it. It's the reason why you're obsessed with it. And I truly believe that 
when you have your why, you always figure out your how. But more importantly, when you are inspired by something and it's deep, deep, deep down inside you, there are so many times that you are brought to action before you could ever say no. So when people go to Disney World and it's like the best, the best day ever when they go to Disney World, is that motivation or inspiration? Um, I would say that would lead more to, to motivation because happiness is not a destination. Um, mm-hmm. It might be for three days, but you know, happiness is not a destination. Joy is, is a part, hopefully a part of everybody's day. At some point, everybody, every day, we should all have joy. But to have sustainable joy is unrealistic, just like to have sustainable sadness is unrealistic. So it's being able to recognize those moments, cherish those moments, and understand maybe how you got to that moment so that you could have more. Yeah. So one of the biggest questions I get from parents is, my daughter's not motivated. She's not motivated to go hit on her own. Or she's not motivated to, you know, become great. And I know my answer to this question, what I always say to people, but I'm curious what you would say if a parent comes up to you and says that. The first thing I usually ask, first thing usually I say is, okay. I mean, because it is okay. You might not like it. You might not agree with it, but it's okay. And then what I usually do is I say, explain to me besides their responsibilities, which are maybe chores that you have them do around the house, schoolwork, and to be a decent human being, what other things do they do on a daily basis? And I always ask them to tell me in terms of like how many hours per day will they do something? Because if you show me your actions, I will tell you what your priorities are. So when they want to be on their bikes with their friends and they want to be playing video games and they'd rather watch a movie, they're their priorities. There they are. So one of two things is going to happen. The parents are going to stay on them and drive them farther away. Mm. Okay. Or you let it be. And hopefully one day that person on their team who they didn't have that much respect for, or didn't think was a good player surpasses them and maybe the inspiration kicks in. Right. I always like to ask, do they have like a goal in the game? You know, because like if you're, if you don't have your why, like, right, like your vision, your, um, you know, your roadmap, then of course they're not going to be motivated. Right. (laughs) Right. Like you and I both knew we wanted to play college sports. Yeah. And so because that was our what we wanted to do, we decided, well, there's probably other people that want that as well. What are they doing? I mean, mm-hmm. th- at least that was one motiva- motivator for me to like go when I don't want to, but I have to. You know, it's like finding that that inner why was was really really important. So I think even just asking your athlete like, "Hey, what are their goals?" you know? And if they don't have any, one, take my goal smasher course because we create a goal there. Right. <laughs> totally plugging that because it is it is really the easiest way to become more motivated or right. become at least more inspired to want a better version of you on the other side, whatever right. that is. I, I put that up on my story today. I said, you know, it's okay if you don't want to train or practice, but just remember there's somebody else that is. Yeah. It was funny. I think there was, 
totally going off on a tangent. But there was something you posted the other day about like, if you're not working, who is? And something like that. And I was just like, dude, I got a dog now. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't worked out in two days. And oh. it's honestly now, bugging me so Now you know why so I, I work out at 4.30 much. every day. Okay, well, I'm taking the dog out at 4.30. <laughs> Great. It's like, for me, I'm like, okay, now my workouts are walking the dog. <laughs> it's kind of sad. It's actually driving me insane. But yeah, that's another curveball that's been thrown at me. But dang it, he's so cute, though. Mm. Um, I just let him out of his cage, so hopefully he doesn't interrupt this podcast anymore. But I do love hearing that the difference between inspiration and motivation. So you talked about your why and how powerful that is. Mm-hmm. I want to know what your why, what your why is. Uh, I mean, right off the bat, my wife and kids, that's number one. Number two is that I, I still just love to compete. One of my favorite things to always think is like, how can I separate myself from my competition today? So I love to compete. I love to compete with, you know, trainers in the area or other hitting instructors or, you know, it's, and it's not outward, it's all inward. And, you know, it's that intrinsic inspiration that allows me to just kind of keep going and keep trying things and keep getting better. And then the other part is what I said before, I never want to go back to that dark place mentally ever again. So the more that I can do and the more that I can stay ready and the more that I can keep my mind and my body and my soul sharp, then, you know, the farther away from that place I can be. Do you like to journal? I do. I do. And I, I, I journal in different ways. There's, there's formal journaling and then there's like notes all over the car. There's notes in my phone. There's notes in my batting cage. Like, but yes, I'm a big journaler. What do you journal about? I mean, you don't um, have to give us like the, the personal insights, but like yeah, yeah. as Life. an athlete, I'm sure you can think of things you wrote down. Yeah, no, um, you know, kind of like life moments, you know, um, it's interesting when I used to journal, I would always journal about where I was, Yeah. uh, where I was kind of in my headspace at that moment. And then like how I was playing. And so it's, it's funny, but, um, I didn't tell you this, but two weeks ago I was cleaning out some stuff and you being the journaler that you are, I found (laughs) one of my old journals from when I played. So this was my, my yeah. So this was my third, third season. Wait, in the pro league? In the pros. Yeah. Oh my God. I'm so excited. Tell me all the things. Yeah. And it just kind of said, you know, it's, it says where I was, I was out in Oregon at the time. I had just become a catcher. And so I was really just learning how to catch. I got drafted as a first baseman. They made me a catcher. So it's just kind of some things in here about where I was mentally, but I have my, I have my bats. I have, you know, things that I was telling myself in the box. So like right here, my first at bat, first pitch was a changeup, single RBI to center field. And then my fourth at bat was a fastball away, change up down, hanging curveball, F8. And then I just kind of would always think about like how I, like we talked about before, how did I feel in the box? What was I thinking? Mm. You know, what can I repeat? What do I need to get rid of? And then I would always, like I said, kind of like my three keys for the next day. So my three keys for the next day was going to be, you know, continue my wide base, feel my back knee down and keep those hands high. Things you're still teaching. Things you're still teaching. Yep. Oh my gosh. I want to just unpack all the things. So you said it was important for you to write down where you were mentally. Yeah. And this is literally proving the fact that you're not always going to be super confident. No, not at all. Super excited. No. Super on point, in, in flow, people like to say. 
No. Um, look, I don't know how it was in softball, in a softball dugout at the end of a game, but I can tell you that in pro ball, at the end of every game, okay, there's somebody on the bench staring out at the field in a, with a blank stare thinking, I literally forgot how to hit. Hmm. Because it's just there's so many games, there's so many opportunities, there's so many other things going on. And the ability to stay that consistent over that long of a period is, it's not possible. Yeah. So, you know, you're, the goal is to keep it as, as far as you can, stay in that zone, stay in that flow as long as you can. But if we were meant to be in that zone for that long a period, we'd all hit 800. <laughs> right. And, you know, it's, it, it can't happen. And that's why visualizing when you're off the field, working on your mental game off the field is, makes being on the field so much easier. Not easy, so much easier. And so you're able to, with that experience, really understand how that growth mindset allows you when you're in that moment, when you're in the box and you get three-tenths of a second to make your decision, you're so clear to make the best decision. Right, right. Oh, so good. Um, so a lot of people, they, if I mean, if they're still listening to episodes at this point, they know how much I love talking about mental game and working yeah. on it. But I mean, even just simply writing in your journal is part of practicing your mental game. Sure. And I know some people, they want direct tools on how to practice. Do you have like one or two things that maybe you're teaching your hitters right now to go home and work on their mental game or do it with you? Yeah. So I always have them tell me after the game, um, they either write it down or in our next session, tell me some things that went through your head. Yeah. And then what you start to see is you start to see patterns because this is all behavior at the end of the day. You know, so it's no different. We all have behavioral patterns and it's no different when we're in the batter's box and those thoughts dictate our physical behaviors. So we start to see patterns and we can find out, okay, well, well I thought, keep my hands up and I thought hard ground ball to second base and I went three for four and then I did it again and I went two for four and I did the next day I went over four but I hit three line drives like guys like you know here's the pattern keep this going mm -hmm. and at the same time you see patterns the other way and the reason why I like to write it down is because I'm I'm a very cerebral type person, but I'm also tangibly, I like tangible stuff too. So when I write it down, I'm writing it, I'm feeling it, I'm seeing it. And then when I read it, it's just reinforced four times over. Yep. And so when I'm able to continue to do that, I'm able to really kind of dive into as I'm writing it, how, you know, thinking back to how I felt when I was in the batter's box. Okay. Yeah. You know what? I don't want to think about not missing anymore because when I do that, my breath starts to get really fast. Mm. I want to think top hand attack the ball because when I do that, now I'm only focused on my mechanics. I'm focused on my process. The results will come. And as baseball and softball tells us, even the best results get caught most of the time. Right. I kid you not. Last week I had an athlete text me after a game and she's like, I popped up all the time. My back shoulder was down. Like, what should I do tomorrow or in this next game? Like, literally, it was like a panic text. What do I yeah. do? And I'm like, have you thought about just hitting a hard ground ball lately? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and literally, I kid you not, she and her dad reached out to me after the next game and said, she just hit a home run. Yeah. And I'm like, it's seriously that simple and people don't believe me ever. Yeah. 
But in a game, it's it's not a time to think about your mechanics. It's not the time to think about, you know, the specific things you were working on in the cage. Because mm-hmm. if you put in enough reps of that thing, intentional reps, good reps during the week, those reps are going to happen subconsciously come game day. Yep. You're not you're not going to think the same way. You should not be thinking about what specific drill you were working on this week. You just have to trust that you put in the work and now it's time to go. And if anything, focus on what you want to do, you know, and you and I can talk for days about that, but it's, it's kind of crazy to think about how the power of at least just thinking about what you were thinking, Mm -hmm. it really does go a long way. Cause like you were saying, like you don't realize that you had a super fast heart rate or your breathing was fast until you go back there, until mm-hmm. you like let yourself go back there. Now, do you go back there in the middle of the game or do you do that like post game? Would that be, what, what would you advise there? I think it evolves as you just mature as a player. You know, as you, as you mature as a player, if you can really take the time in between at bats to kind of go to that place, then yeah, I suggest do that in between at bats because that's how we get back on track faster. If, it's, if you're the type of person where if your mind starts going too much and that's just going to take you farther away from, from that moment, from that game, then do it in between games or do it after the game. Um, I think that's just, it's part of that. It's part of self-awareness that comes with, with maturing as a player. And I think, you know, everything you and I are talking about under, falls under the umbrella of self-awareness. Mm-hmm. And a lot of players aren't as self-aware as they could be because a lot of times I call them mindless reps. You know, they take a lot of mindless reps, whether it is physical, mental, or emotional, they're taking mindless reps. And so, you know, they don't realize like, Hey, um, Ashley, you keep stepping in. No, I'm not. Yes. Yes, you are. I'm watching your foot go towards the plate. Well, well I'm not trying to, no, that's a, of course, of course you're not trying to, I know that. Okay. But where's your mind right now? Okay. Because if you're mindless in training, and we know that you're going to be mindless in the game and now amp it up 50 times because you're in the game. Like that's where our margin for error just gets too small. Right. Yeah. I also like to teach too, when you have a great game, like let's say that's the three for four day, you're just crushing it. You felt good. The most important thing is to write about that entire day, like that entire game you know, from the start to the finish or even beforehand. Like I always joke about like, what did you eat for breakfast that day? Like it probably (sighs) wasn't a sausage, egg and cheese bagel from McDonald's. Like (laughs) I I say this because so like young athletes can probably do that and get away with it. But like, as I got older, if I ate that before a game, I was not, I'd felt slow. I like in every regard, mentally and physically. And so like, honestly, when I was in college, originally I was given a journal and I, I, I was given a journal, but not taught how to journal. Mm-hmm. And I didn't journal ever. Like I, I, it was like, oh, it's got pretty peat on it. Like, this is great. And my hitting coach gave it to me and I was like, this is cool. But like, what do I do with it? You know? And like, it wasn't until I was in the pro leagues until I understood the power of journaling and the power of reflecting on, you know, what made the good days great, what made the bad days happen. You know, because that because that's all back to what you're saying is self-reflection. So I'm so glad we tapped into that because I think that's one of the most powerful tools in any regard, in any regard. 
I have poured my heart and my soul into something magical, and it is called the Smash Tribe membership. So if you're a hitter that's looking for a huge library of drills, some workouts that you can do from home to gain power and strength and connection between your upper half and lower half, and simply just some workouts that you can do from home, this Smash Tribe Academy membership was built in the middle of COVID because there were so many people asking for these things. And honestly, if you would take all of my best coaching content and put it into one place, this membership is where it's at. Also, perks of being a member is you can do virtual one-on-one training with me. You can get a video swing analysis from me. You can get so many things inside this membership that I'd be doing a disservice if I didn't tell you about about it. So the Smash Tribe membership can be found at www.ashleybtraining.com and just head to join the Smash Tribe and you'll be able to see more things that you have access to, including an epic t-shirt that I've had made for every single member. And you get the Always Grind 365 Hitters Notebook as well by being a member. So if you guys are already super excited to become a member, maybe pause this podcast and become a member today because you get the perks as soon as you sign up. So I can't wait to see you guys become members of my Smash Drive and be a part of this exclusive community. I'm so excited to have you guys in on all of the things. And you're also the first to know all the cool things as well. So with that, head to www.ashleybtraining.com and see how you can become a member today. I can't wait to meet you on the inside. All right, let's get back to the episode. Okay, let's talk about hitting. Let's go Let's go into all the things. So in your journal, you talked about those cues that you were giving yourself mentally. Yeah. But how should we start? I mean, we can go in so many directions with hitting, but we, we share a lot of similar a lot of similar coaching cues. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, you coach softball and baseball players. Do you coach them differently or do you no. coach them the same when it comes to the no, swing? The same. Why? No, absolutely the same. Because it's it's the same swing. And honestly, if we're being totally honest, softball players actually have less margin for error than a baseball player does. I mean, when you start getting up to that level where that ball you know, by the time these pitchers throw it, it's 36 feet away and it's 66 miles an hour and could possibly cut at the last second or come in at the last second. Like that bat better be moving in the exact direction that it's supposed to be moving. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in baseball, you, you have a little bit of a little bit more room to, you know, drop your hands, you know, have your front shoulder be out a little bit, get on your front side a little bit open your front foot a little bit. You kind of have a little bit more margin for error. And so, you know, but I teach exactly the same way because a swing is a swing uh, in my eyes. And, a, and to, to hit the ball the way that we're supposed to, which is find the barrel and hit it as hard as you can. Um, you know, everybody needs to do these three or four things. How we get there, totally up to you and your body and your mind and your mind-body connection. And that's, you know, my job is to work within that unless you're coming to me when you're five years old and and you're this, you know, piece of clay that I'm allowed to mold, you know, I have to work within what your body is giving me. And that's, that's kind of my job. So, you know, I, I do believe that there's this, this balance of what your mind and body are allowed to do and then what we have to do. And then we, it's our job 
to come together and find that find that swing for you that you can repeat and that's the most important thing finding that swing that you can repeat over and over again feel it over and over again and fix it as soon as possible that's some of the things that we're striving for yeah absolutely and you and I again we we think so similarly but you don't teach an athlete to have one type of swing. You no. teach the athlete to use what they have to the best of their ability. Right. I work with a seven-year-old. She is not my height at 5'11". Right. Do you think I should have her swing like me? Heck no. I hope nobody's swing looks exactly like mine. Like, there's a reason why it's my logo. Right. <laughs> you know? But I've seen people try to have my swing, and I'm like, you're, that's not how this works. Right. You're supposed to figure out and feel what type, what power feels like in your legs, what the connection between your upper half and lower half feels like, what loose arms feel like. Like that is, it's your swing. It's like literally your signature. Well, you like, I mean, and you and I have talked about it before. So for instance, like front foot, your front foot is 90 degrees. Okay. Yeah. And you have I'm this, weird. you have I'm this weird. hip mobility that your back knee can drive, your back heel can be up. You can brace yourself your upper body explodes, but your front foot doesn't move. And that's unique to you. It works for me. Okay. Right. Me, I'm a 45 degree guy. I mm -hmm. step a little bit open, a little bit 45, not open, but I'm not 90 degrees. I'm about 45 degrees. And that allows me to get into my best position and keep my best position to create my most powerful swing. Yeah. And I, and I told you this, it was a couple of weeks ago when I started experimenting more with the athletes that I was working with. I'm like, Hey, just try to like have your foot out a little, like see what happens, you know, yeah. because most young athletes don't have that type of flexibility in their back hip. Like yeah. I did. And this whole time, Chris, I'm, I'm literally coaching athletes to walk in the box pigeon toed because right. that's what I did. Like that's sure. what I was taught. Um, from a very early age, which is why I was probably able to sustain that. Sure. But I realized that, I mean, again, my most powerful swing in college, it took, you know, 15 years to make. Right. You know, it's like it took time to create that. So having athletes just try things out and see what feels good is is important. Yeah. Because however she's going to feel confident in the box, you should not be telling her if she's right or wrong, if she's feeling good. Yeah. You know, and, and, and that just feeds into another point. Okay. Going back to the, what we just said about self-awareness. <laughs> if you as a hitter, okay. Can verbalize everything you're trying to accomplish, not only with your swing, but in that batter's box, how can I tell you you're wrong? It's the people who don't know what they're trying to accomplish that can't repeat it. And now you leave yourself open to anybody who thinks they know anything to tell you something about your swing and what you should be doing in that batter's box. Right. But if you're sitting there saying, hey, coach, today in practice, can you do me a favor? I've been really working on my front foot. Can you make sure I don't step open? Can you also make sure that I keep my hands up as I stride? And then I'm really trying to work on exploding my barrel to the opposite gap. How am I as a coach going to go, no, no, that just sounds terrible. Like, uh-uh. At that point, I'm just trying to help you confirm everything you're trying to push. Right. Right. Uh, and that's, it's where, I remember when I first started coaching, it was so hard because I was trying to just give them all the things that I knew, you know, right away. But what I've learned is the less I say, the more they figure it out. 
And like my cues are so minimal now, but they're more impactful. Of course. I feel like, because now I'm giving them a cue and I'm letting them figure out what that means and how that feels. And then after we do it, I literally ask, so how did that feel? Right. And and those people that I just met for the first time that don't realize that I'm a coach that asks a lot of questions right. and tells you to speak, some of them are like, I don't know how that felt. Right. And I'm like, okay, well, we're going to spend the rest of the session understanding how things feel for us. Yeah, how to communicate it. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I get so excited talking about this stuff with you. <laughs> um, ugh, so fun. So you said that a great swing it entails three or four things. Mm-hmm. Like everybody pretty much needs to have these three or four things. What are yeah. those things that you that you think those are? So for me, it's striding out to a strong, stable base um, where you're going to have, what, when you get to that landing spot, you're about 50-50, you know, almost mm-hmm. like you're playing defense in basketball. That's number one. Number two is our hands are going to be coming from a, from a position of up and back, you know, usually kind of somewhere around your ear, allow, you know, allowing that space between your hands and your ear. Number three for me is that every swing should start from the back, the backside, and, and allowing that knob to work towards the ball. And then the fourth thing is exploding as quickly as you can into the opposite field gap. Those are I'm my four this, things. I'm writing this down. Yeah. Because I kind of want to unpack them if you're cool with it. Sure. Um, okay. So the 50, 50 thing, I will tell you when I first started coaching, I was like, no, like when you load, you should be, well, technically this is not, this is after the step, but I always felt like I was going to have more weight on my backside. Cause I felt like that was how I was going to get more power. But then when I actually look at the swing and break it down, when my front heel lands and then I start turning my back hip, my head is over my back knee and my weight is completely centered. Uh huh. So is that what you mean by the 50-50? Yeah. So when you when you stride out, okay, you're gonna, you know, kind of start that little bit of transfer of weight. That's that momentum that we need to create mm-hmm. to to not only, you know, allow the bat to come to the ball, but to also to be in that position to brace ourselves, you know, for impact. Right. Um, and and as you do that. I always like to talk about creating space, okay? Because at the end of the day, nothing else matters if you don't create the space for the hands and the path to get to the ball, yeah. okay? Um, and that's why I always joke that our body is doesn't create our swing. Our body helps our swing. Mm. But just, Ooh, let's put that on a T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> um, just like most of the time, if we have, you know, issues getting to the ball or getting through the ball, a lot of times it's it's our body getting in the way of our bat path. Mm. So so I mean that the way you described it is is perfect. You know, being able to have, you know, kind of your bot your heads over your back knee, but you've already you've created that tilt with your body because your hands have already gotten out through to contact. Right. And that allows you to use the ground. You know? Absolutely. I, I call like these helicopter swings when we don't even create any ground force. We're just existing above the ground. But the 50-50 mm-hmm. stance, you know, hinged hips, booty back, like yeah. loaded, yeah. even on your stride. Exactly. That's what's going to allow you to figure out, okay, well, how do I get the power from the ground? And I've never seen a hitter hit a ball over the fence that doesn't do that, you uh-huh. know? So those are those are some simple things that it's required 
that are required to, to make a great swing happen. So you also talked about hands up and back. Yep. So this is one where I think a lot of, at least a lot of athletes that I've worked with, some of them have their hands so close to their head mm-hmm. and their chin the whole time. And I know you can probably describe this in a fun way. And I want to know how you describe how the separation of the hands is probably a part of how you would describe this part. When I was coming up, you know, a lot of it was start with your hands close and think as your front foot strides out, your hands stride back. Mm-hmm. And for me personally, that was just way too much to think about. Yeah. Okay. It almost felt like a dance move to me. And so, you know, and it's like, okay, well, I got this dance move, but at the same time, like, I also need to like feel this stretch at this perfect moment. But it also was something to me where I like to think about it this way. If I'm trying to hit the ball forward, I want as little movement going backwards as possible. Yeah. Okay. So when I like to think about my hands, I like to think about my hands up and back. Okay. And I want them up and back and I want them to stay there because I feel like there's always going to be some natural rhythm that goes on. So I don't Mm -hmm. need to create rhythm. The rhythm is just going to be there. So if I now, because I do believe that my body gets in the way more than it does help me, the more focus I can have on my body to get into a good launch position, be able to feel my back knee down, be able to feel my back hip firing where it's supposed to. And because we know we work from the ground up in that sequence, I know that if those two things go right, my hands are ready to go. Mm-hmm. And they're going to be going in the proper position. Whereas when my hands are down too close to my face or too low, okay, what happens is no matter how hard I try, the first thing that happens is my elbow gets stuck to my rib cage. Yeah. And if we just want to be realistic, my rib cage is bigger than my elbow. So it's always going to win. Yeah. So now once I'm stuck, I got one or two places to go. I'm either going to fly my front shoulder out to create the space or my hands are going to go down and back to create space. Both mm-hmm. movements that if we isolated them, any hitting instructor, any coach would say, that's wrong. But it all stemmed from the fact that my hands were just in the wrong place to begin with. I, I also look at it this way. Okay, I always like to bring other sports into baseball. Okay, So I like to, I like to think about boxing <gasps> when I Me hit. Me too. Okay? Me so too. Oh, this I, is so good. I say it all the time. If a boxer, okay, in the middle of a fight, could literally walk around with his power hand up and back and not have to worry about playing defense, he would do it. She would do it. They would just be waiting for that moment to unleash. Mm-hmm. So why wouldn't I want to be waiting with the bat in my hand to unleash? So my boxing reference, just because we went there, you know, you think about like the jab itself. Like when you're, you said protecting, when you're protecting and you go for a jab, like uh-huh. it's not going to hurt that bad. But like if you're doing the pullback and like there's a big, big difference in the force that you're able to create. And so because we're working on speed when it comes to what what we're holding in our hands, which is our bat, getting those hands back almost like a boxer ready to punch and then then like snapping through and allowing that force to go through. Like that is my favorite analogy. And I'm so glad you mentioned that because that's one of my I probably have brought it up to every hitter at some point. (laughs) Yes. That's so awesome. Okay. So the next one you said, um, start back and knob to the ball. Can you describe that one for us? Yeah. So when, when I start my sequence, okay, 
we all think about getting that back hip rotated, which is what we need to do. Okay. But I like to think more about direction than I do rotation. Yeah. Okay. So I always like to use the plate as a point of reference because when you're standing in the batter's box, okay. And I ask my hitters this all the time. All right. Is the ball coming at you or is it coming towards you? Toward. Exactly. But we all think it's coming at us. Mm. So when, when, when it's coming at us, and this is for my younger hitters, even high school hitters sometimes, if, yes, if the ball is coming at me, yes, flying my shoulder open, flying my front hip open, and bringing my hands in towards my body, yes, that would hit the ball that would be coming at you. Mm-hmm. The ball's not coming at you, it's coming towards you. So right. I want all my movements to be towards the ball, okay? So instead yeah. of a full hip rotation, Ooh, I, like I want to think back knee, back hip, knob, quarter turn, going to the ball. Okay. And then from there, because I'm in that position now, now my barrel is in a place where I can adjust to whatever zone the ball is in. Mm-hmm. So that's why I always think knob to the ball first, because I want that, I want that initial movement to be all going in the pr- proper direction to then be able to send my barrel where it's supposed to go. Yeah. Are your hips facing the ball at contact? Yeah. Yeah. They're not facing like they're not facing the pitcher and I'm a righty. So they're not facing shortstop. And for a lefty, they're not facing second base. They're facing the ball at contact. And that, that, at that bracing point, at that point of impact, the rest of the rotation is what's forcing the ball out with your direction with the barrel. Whereas if I'm already rotated too much and now my hands, instead of me being behind my hands, my hands are kind of on the side of me. I'm already, I already have less stability. And so all, that entire one, it really just leads to exploding everything to the ball quick. Yep. Can you give us a drill that you do to get to the ball quicker? I, I'm, I'm a big fan of like starting, stopping, and then starting again. So okay. I'm a big fan of like stride out, pause, and then once you feel like you're in that position, feel the sequence of ground up and everything going as fast as it can. Okay. And it'll tell, and because you're kind of starting in that position of that quiet place, yeah, you're gonna feel which body part fires first. Yep. And then that'll tell you, that'll give you instant feedback. You know, mm-hmm. the ball's on the tee, it's not moving, you're not moving. So all we have is, is, is the speed at which I'm moving and the direction at which I'm moving. Both are gonna give you instant feedback. Yeah, I, I really like this drill. My friend Ryan Fuller, he works with the Orioles. He showed this drill where basically it's, I call it the heel down drill. I don't know what he calls it, but basically uh-huh. both heels are down. You're in that 50-50 stance. Front foot is a little bit open, so about yeah. your 45. And it's exactly what you're saying. is like your hands are loaded, your hips are back. And from that position, from that stop, you have to figure out how to hit the ball. Yep. And I can't tell you how many times athletes that do it for the first time just stare at the ball and they're like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> right. And they're like, uh, and I was like, just go, just try it. See what happens. And then some of them will like, their, their legs don't move at all. They just throw their hands. Yep. And I'm like, so how'd you hit that ball? And they're like, awful. And I'm like, check your legs out. They're right where they started, you know? So yeah. it's, it's really interesting to see, you know, they do end up figuring it out. Like the more reps they get, the more you just have them figure out the drill on their own. Like I said, like they're going to start using their hips more. They're going to start using the ground more. And it's yeah. really fun to see. So I really, I really love that breakdown of the swing. Yeah. So awesome. Okay. So last thing before we go into our five to thrive questions, you have something big that you just launched recently 
And yeah. I am so pumped for you. And watching your promo video for this <laughs> for this program amps me up. Like you talk about motivation. Like I watch that thing. I'm gonna go work out right afterwards. Right. Um, so tell me all about your your program's working on exit velocity, correct? Yeah. So I use exit velocity as the metric, as our baseline. And so essentially what happened was back in March, uh, mid-March, my doctor called me up and she wasn't happy with my latest round of test results. And so she said to me, look, I'd like to get aggressive with your treatment. And I said, okay. And she said, but you know, to, to know if the treatment's working, to know if the cocktail of medicine is working, I need you to get aggressive on your side too. I said, okay. Um, you know, what does that look like? She's like, you know, push yourself, get outside your comfort zone, you know, do things that maybe you feel like you wouldn't have enough, enough energy for. And then we can see, you know, if, if you have sustainable energy, then it's working. If you can't get out of bed for two days, I want to know that too. And we'll adjust. So I said, okay, fine. Well, um, COVID hits and all the gyms close. So what I would normally use as a baseline for progress would be a deadlift or a bench press or a squat. That wasn't possible because I don't have that equipment in my house. So I decided, all right, I'll just do my exit velocity. And that first day I went to the cage and, you know, off a tee with a wood bat, I was 93 and I, you know, struggled to get it, but I took a picture of it, uh, put it in my notebook and just moved on. So for the next four weeks, I just went all out. I'm talking like four strength workouts a week, two endurance runs a week, two sprint workouts a week, forearm and wrist exercises, uh, four days a week of hitting with all, all my old favorite drills and yoga and mobility work. And after 12 weeks, I retested and I had jumped from 93 to 102. Jeez. And I was like, okay, this is pretty cool. Like pretty cool from a baseball standpoint, softball standpoint, pretty cool from a life standpoint. And I was like, you know what, let's just, I'll just keep going. You know, I, I have like three more weeks, you know, I had gotten tested in the middle. I get tested like every six weeks. So I got tested in the middle there and things were kind of budging, but from a feel standpoint, I was like going in the right direction. So I was like, all right, let's just keep going. I got like two more weeks to perform my next test. And so I just kept on the program and my exit velocity just kept going higher. I went from 104 to 105 to 106 to 107 to 108. And finally I hit 111 twice. And what's crazy is that all these swings are on film. And I think because once I hit 102, I almost, part of that thing is because I didn't believe it. And then part of it was, I think people just wouldn't believe me. So, you know, being a 35 year old battling cancer, like people are like, yeah, okay, whatever. So I was like, you know, I, and, and so as a joke, I sent it to a couple friends um, who are still in pro ball and they were like, look, man, like this is, everybody asked the first question, how'd you do this? And, you know, some of them joked about coming back and playing. Some of them joked about, you know, getting a job as a hitting coach. Um, but they said, look, regardless, you like, whatever you did, you need to take this and like, use it, you know, the right way. So I kind of prayed on it and thought about it. And just one day I was running and God was like, look, build a program and sell it and just help as, help as many people as you can and help as many people who just want to get better. And, you know, there's a couple of things that make this a little bit different is that one, you know, I still consider myself a player. So this is a program that was built by a player for players. Like I'm not, you know, this isn't a coach coming from a coach. This isn't coming from you know, uh, a strength coach that knows that these are the moves that are supposed to be done, but have never been in the box and don't know how they're supposed to translate. You know, the, the other part is that because this was done during COVID, all my gains were made either in my guest bedroom 
or in a parking lot at five o'clock in the morning <laughs> with minimal equipment. I'm talking, you know, a couple sets of dumbbells, a medicine ball, a kettlebell, a mini band, and a jump rope. Wow. And, you know, I really do feel like, you know, this, this, the program that I put out, it's about becoming a better, more athletic, more stable, explosive athlete first. Mm-hmm. And then it translates to the box and it translates yeah. to your skill and being able to, and that's why I put in the strength workouts and the hitting all at the same time, because now going back to what we were talking about before, self-awareness, feel, you know, you're able, when you're doing a, a skater hop, which is, you know, jumping Sorry. side to side. Yeah. When you go into your drill work that day and now you're doing the hop back drill, or you're doing the one knee down drill where you need to feel all that balance on that back knee. You need to feel all that balance in that, in that ground force in that foot. You just did it that day. And now you're directly translating it to your swing. So you're able to, at the end of the day, create this mind body connection that it's all for the reason and all for the purpose that when you get into the batter's box and you decide to swing, you are able to take your most explosive, stable swing. And the strength coach background in me is just geeking out right now because you've literally in this program, you've sent it to me and I was looking through it and I'm like, every single one of these moves is translating. And and I know specifically what muscles are translating. I mean, when you take that, when you do the program, you're not going to know this. Like I studied this for all of college, but it's insane and awesome to see what specific jump drill or what specific move with the kettlebell can directly transform your swing, help you have a stronger base, help you with all of these things. And I know how much you love talking about your like wrists yeah. and speed with that. And I saw there were some people, you were doing this, you had your hand in a rice bucket. Yeah, that's part of the program. And it brought me back to college when my hitting coach, who was a baseball guy, like and everybody in baseball is like doing the rice bucket. Yeah. I was like, what is this? Like, I feel like I'm on a farm, like just <laughs> digging around at, like, what is the purpose of the rice bucket and how can that help your swing overall? So the purpose of the rice bucket is essentially, it's the same thing as water for swimmers. You know, when you're in water and you're treading through water, like it's exhausting. Yeah. Okay. And so rice bucket for your hands and your wrists is the same thing. When you're going through in rice and you're going down and you're grabbing and twisting, it's, you're essentially treading rice with your hands. And so it's got enough force to create enough resistance to get all these tiny muscles in your hands and wrists and forearms firing. And at the same time, it, it translates because the movements that you're making, the, mm-hmm. the, the grab and turn, the stabilization, but also turning at the same time, it directly translates to your swing. Because when you're in that moment, like I said, it's not just making yourself swing fast, but also you have to stop something and send it back out. So if your hands and wrists are not able to make something, make the bat move as fast as possible, but also be the most stable at possible Ooh, while also not rolling over too soon, mm-hmm. that's the essence of hitting. <laughs> yeah. And you have to have strong forearms to be able to be that stable position at yeah. contact. I even say that in so many people, they hate bunting, but I thrived off of bunting. Yeah. But like, even then, like you have to have a strong base to be able to stop the ball and let it go in another direction Yeah, and actually have some control with that. Sure. So I think, you know, pitchers, that's important to have the rice bucket in order to gain some wrist. And, and I mean, in any 
hitter in any position. I think that's super important. So that's so cool. So in the program, do they have like specific moves that they do? Do you have videos that kind of describe how to do this stuff? Yeah. So with the program, when you buy it and you sign up, you will get prompted to create a username and password mm. and on my website. And you have 90 tutorial videos for you to be wow. able to go and, and reference right away. So every single drill, every single exercise and every single dynamic warm up, uh, everything is right there on the website for you to reference. This is so cool. And and I'm totally going to say this. You, I remember you, you were talking to me about this program and you were like, how much should I charge for it? Like, what should I do? And basically people are getting this for, for nothing. Like yeah. when I, when I think about the price that it is, I'm like the amount of amazingness that's the only word I could come up with right now. That is inside this program. I would have died to have this program growing up. Yeah, um, I mean, for, my dad would love it. Yeah, I mean, literally, I, I wanted to take all the guesswork out of it because you know it's interesting. I get DMs from kids, you know, on Instagram, and they're asking me, "Hey, I can't afford both. So, do you suggest I get a hitting coach or a personal trainer?" I'm like, and in my mind, I'm thinking like, if you're reaching out to a stranger on Instagram, like you want to get better. Like you want help. So like, you know, people told me this is a six, $700 program. Like, that's great. I appreciate it. But you know, I'm, I'm selling it for 199 because I don't want anybody to feel like they can't afford to get better. That's not what this is about. Like I've taken something that I love. I've taken something that I did on my own. I've taken my own experience and I want to bring it to people who, who want to get better, but maybe not, they don't have the direction. And also to understand too, like, this is a 12 week program. This is not, you know, a four week program. Things don't like you might come to the realization that you need to make some changes in four weeks, but real sustainable change, real sustainable strength is not going to be, um, is not going to be made. So like this is a 12 week program to help people understand like what they need to do on a daily basis. And so I've, what I've done is I basically, I want the player to think, to only have two decisions to make on a daily basis. When am I doing it and how much weight am I using? Mm-hmm. Literally, that's it. And, and it's so funny that in our entire discussion before we even started talking about this, we talk about body awareness. And I know your program, it's one thing where you pay once, you have it forever. Yeah. And I'm guaranteeing the world right now that this will not always be this price. Like, it's gonna, it, like the way I'm looking at it is it's, it's gonna help change so many lives that... I, I can see this being done by thousands and thousands of people in the US. Like that's how big this thing is gonna get. And it's simply because it is putting together the body awareness and you have this program forever. So when you finish the 12 weeks, what do you hope athletes do when they finish the program itself? Because I've I've basically laid out what you need to get done and the moves that you need to do on a daily, weekly basis to become proficient. I have I I've left the amount of weight that a player wants to use up to them. So if you get this program and you go through it the first time and the heaviest weight that you could use during the program was 35 or 40 pounds, great, no problem. Take a month off, take two months off, you know, do it in the winter and then do it in the summer. But like, I I promise you that the next time you do it, the highest weight you'll be able to use will go up. Because right. you, you've just gotten stronger. So now, because you've added more load, this has just become a whole new program. So it's like a lifelong program, actually. Absolutely. I mean, dude, I've had, I've I want to do it. I've had parents, you know, they buy it and then they look it over and they go, oh, I'm doing this. Like, yeah. Because again, 
my whole goal is for you to become a better functional, stable athlete first. So it doesn't matter kind of what your sport is or, you know, parents do it with your kids. That's great. You know, but like this, this is not, you know, the, the baseball specificness comes in some of the accessory movements, some of the core movements, and then obviously the hitting drills. Um, but at the end of the day, like this, this program, like I said, is to help the body awareness, to make the mind body connection and to become proficient in movement first. Where can people find it? I know people are going to want to know this ASAP and I'll put it in the show notes as well. Yeah. Um, they can go to my website, vasamitraining.com, uh, V A S A M I training.com. And it's right there. Um, it's all ready for, for anybody who wants to get better, you know, and I really do believe that, as I said before, the ability to figure out how to separate yourself on a daily basis is, um, always to me going to be the X factor. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I know you are present a lot on Instagram. What's your Instagram hangle, hangle handle so people can follow you and see all these little tidbits that you're throwing out there? Yeah. So, um, at Chris Vasami, C-H-R-I-S-V-A-S-A-M-I. And yeah, go check out my Instagram. I, I put on, I put up some videos demonstrating some of the drills in the program, some of the workouts in the program, some of the exercises. I'll, I'll keep doing that just to give people a feel for, for what they would be kind of getting into. And also look, I still swing five times a week myself. So I'm always putting up videos of myself, routines that I do, some drills that I do, because like I said, I, I still always consider myself a player. The more that I can keep training, you know, that's kind of like my happy place. <laughs> Built by a player for a player. That's right. I love that. All right. Well, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but I have five questions I want to ask you before we sign off. Are you Shoot. ready for these? Yeah. All right. First question, by the way, these are called five to thrive. Just came to okay. my head and we're going to use it. Okay. Actually, Rachel Hollis might have something similar. And I know how much <laughs> you and I love her. What is your favorite thing about coaching, Chris? Uh, absolutely. The, the ability to make connections with players. And, you know, I really do feel like my job, first and foremost, is to, is to make that connection and be able to teach the person who is in front of me the way that they are supposed to learn. Mm, good one. I had a question, but I think I'm going to rephrase it. What's the greatest lesson cancer taught you? That as long as you have hope, you can do anything. Love it. Simple. So powerful. Who was your biggest role model growing up and why? I would say it's probably a toss up between my dad and my older brother. Um, As I said, you know, I'm a fan of the birth order. My older brother is uh, six and a half years older than me. So a lot of my competitive nature came from being in the backyard, playing against him one-on-one or playing against him and his friends. And I remember, you know, being like seven, eight years old and, you know, they're, they're all 14 and 15 and I'm losing by one on a walk-off and like the bottom of the ninth coming in, just flipping out. And my mom's like, you'll be fine. (laughs) And so that's where a lot of my competitive nature came from. And then my dad just, um, he's just a good person. He's a good human being, good baseball player, just, you know, really taught me the pillar of hard work and passion and, and understanding that, you know, he was always like my biggest advocate, my biggest support, but also he was always the first person to tell me right away, like something needs to change. And so uh, he really taught me that when you are real about stuff and you look in the mirror and you're totally honest, that's when you are able to make changes. So good. 
So good. What's one thing you wish you could tell younger Chris? When you think you've done enough, do more. Boom. See, this is, I swear, you come up with like the quickest but most powerful (laughs) statements, and I love them. So before I ask you the last question, I want to thank you for being on the show. Uh, This is a long time coming. You and I, I, it feels like we've been friends for years, but literally it hasn't even been a year. Hard to think about. Um, We've already talked about you coming back on the show. Um, So those of you who are listening that have listened to Chris's story and want to know more, I need you to go to the ABT community on Facebook and literally write down what questions you want me to ask him next time. Because I know there are a lot of things that people are going to want to hear from you because you are like Yoda. You have so much insight. Can't believe you're as young as you are. But I, it's been so fun to have you on. Yeah. And I just, you know, I tell people this all the time. I'm an open book. You know, I, I truly believe that. Uh, and I feel this way myself. You know, I would always think, you know, why would somebody want to hear what I have to say? But there's always somebody who needs to hear it. So that's why I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an open book when it comes to anything. Love it. Love it. And I'll have in the show notes where everybody can follow you so they can continue the conversation, maybe reach out to you about your new program, things like that. Last and final question is what legacy do you want to leave on the game? Essentially, basically just wholeheartedly wanted everybody to get as far in this game as they possibly could. Well, you're doing an incredible job of it, my friend. It's been a joy being your friend. It's been a joy watching you come out with this incredible program please go t- go buy it, guys. You will not be disappointed. He put his heart and soul into this. And I hope everybody that's listening at least goes and checks it out. And if it's for them, or if they have questions, reach out to Chris because he's he is an open book if you have any questions. Thank you so much for being on the show. This has been an absolute blast. I'm so excited for people to listen to this one. No, this was awesome. Thank you for the opportunity. <laughs> Can you see now why he's my best friend? Oh my gosh, Chris is so knowledgeable with hitting and he explains things in such amazing ways. I hope you guys are excited about his program because I kid you not, I think I'm going to do this entire program. He is always searching for ways to get better. He's always searching for ways to get stronger and he is the best advocate in the world for this type of program. So if you want better exit velocity, which means overall better strength, cohesiveness, body, awareness. This program's for you and do not hesitate. Go to the show notes to see how you can sign up. And even if you don't sign up for his program, go follow him. He is so knowledgeable, like I said, with hitting and mental game. And he is my spirit animal. Kid you not, he is my spirit animal. So please, please, please go to the link in the show notes to go follow him, to go see his programs. You guys are not going to want to miss out on the things that he has to share. Thank you so much for tuning into this. If this really blew your mind, like it blew mine, honestly, go share it with your friends. The more, the merrier when it comes to this type of stuff. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. I'm excited to see you guys same time, same place next week. Bye guys. Bye guys.